0: Welcome to the Education Scholar's Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Nian. In this episode, you will hear part two of my conversation with Deirdre Hunter, assistant teaching professor at the Oshman Engineering Design Kitchen at the School of Engineering at Rice University. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Education's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of the Education Scholar Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. So let me ask you a question that I've I feel like I've had for engineers a long time, but I've been scared to ask it. Yes. But I feel like that I can open up to you. Um, <laughs> that culture coming through, you know. Um, I, I feel like that I've met people that could have been engineers, but they they don't want to be because they are not good at, math and science you talked about that mentioned that a little while ago if you're good at math and science be an engineer do you think that there is is that a real requirement or is it easier is it not or you know how does that work what in your in your view
1: yeah gosh i wish that wasn't the the norm right and um but that's kind of like, I mean, that's where our culture is at right now is, oh, you're in high school. What are you good at? Oh, you're good at math and science. Oh, you should be an engineer. Um, and the reality is, is I meet students every day that are really good at math and science that should not be engineers. It's not their passion. It's, it's what their grandfather was or their dad was or their uncles. And they think engineering is going to provide me a stable career. I'm going to be able to provide for a family. I'm going to earn good money. And I can be good at it, but it's not necessarily a fit with their personality. And sometimes they struggle with choosing a career outside of engineering. And I'm like, if that's the choice that's best for you, like you've got to make that choice. In the same realm, I think that this whole idea of you got to be good at math and science scares a lot of potentially really good engineers away. I think actually, some of the students I've met that are able to make those, we talked earlier about those. The cognitive reasoning and making judgments based on data and evidence. I think sometimes some of the students that are best at that are the ones that are not good at engineering or uh, math and science uh, because they're able to see reasoning in a different way um, and see that data can be used to present many different opinions or ideas. I think that we've got to get over that kind of a tagline of if you're good at math and science going into engineering. Um, If you think that you want, this is what I tell students, if you want to solve problems that change people's lives, then engineering can be a place for you. If you're scared of math and and science, we can get you over that hump. Um, But, you know, engineering students do need to take calculus and they've got to take physics. Some of Uh them have to take chemistry Um, those are big, scary classes at the university level. And they're classes that sometimes can become roadblocks for people. But the reality is, is that once you can get over some of those hurdles, um, the rest of it comes a lot more fun. And yeah, you apply some of your calculus and your physics in later classes. Um, And yes, you've got to understand some math and science. But the reality is, is that, um, we have so much technology at our hands these days that can do some of the math and science for us. And it's about making good decisions based on what the machines or algorithms are telling us. And so um, really what it takes to be a good engineer is to be able to recognize design challenges, um, have a c- courage to like overcome them, and to be creative enough to think of novel solutions Um, to those. I think a word that you used earlier was empathy. Um, Most of our designs are designs that are meant for human use or even for use within our environment. So like if we're talking about oil and gas, okay, those aren't consumer products, but they are products that have an impact on humans. Um, They have an impact on our environment. And so are we doing it in a way that treats our environment the, as best as possible. And I think that those are people that have a different level of empathy. And I oftentimes I think empathy um, does not necessarily pair well with this like rigid math science um, because you have to go against the grain sometimes. So I just returned from Mexico. I was there for three weeks with some students. I had nine students down there for a study abroad. And I think they first come in with this idea of like, oh, I have the right solution to the water sanitation problem. And it's because they have a U.S.-centric idea of what it means to have clean water in our homes. And they get to see firsthand families, communities, homes that don't have access to clean water. And we say, will the U.S. solution work here? <laughs> like, no, it, it just won't. Um, but then they also see that different solutions, even within side of these communities, work for different households or different communities within the same state of Mexico. And so they start to realize that we really have to understand the human and all of the design. And that takes a different level of skill. Um, and that takes a skill that's very different from wanting the person that's comfortable with the answers being in the back of the book. Um, oh, you're gonna work through this problem set and the even numbers have answers in the back of the book. Like that's not how it works. Like the, the water solution for the most part works in the US. I mean, we have places like Flint and Mississippi where they're having severe water issues and water shortages in Nevada and um, Southern California. But overall our water system works in the US. But just because it works here doesn't mean that it works for everyone. Um, And it doesn't even mean it's the best solution or the right solution, to be honest. And so helping them see the humans at the center of these devices and know that um, there's not a single solution um, for the, the answer. And then I think the other thing that they really observed was there is a particular solution that cleans the water very effectively. But I think something like only 40% of the people that have them in their homes are actually drinking, consuming clean water? Because it's not just the device alone, it's the human interaction with the device. The device itself cleans the water, but what happens to the hygiene in the home at the far end of this device? Okay, so you put dirty water in, it goes through this device, it cleans water. At the end, there's clean water coming out. But did you turn on the disinfection UVC light Have you cleaned the exit hole for the water recently? Have you cleaned the cup that you're using to catch the water on the end? Did you clean it with clean water or did you clean it with tap water? So like, you know, there's so many layers of hygiene and like, those are all human interactions with their environment. And so how do we design the best solutions? We need people that really are thinking about humans and humans at the center of all the the design solutions that we create. Yes, we need some calculations. (laughs) We need to know the flow rate (laughs) through the tube and how much UVC light we need to clean the water. And we need to have those calculations. And we need someone to like collect the water at the end and test it and run a test on it for E. coli contamination or other types of contaminants. But we also need to know how does the human interact with this device and is it possible to them to use this device in their current context in their current home. To provide clean water to their family, that's a human problem.
0: Yeah, it it almost you know feels like that. Um, your math and science does not even bring you to the right direction if you're not willing to look empathetically at the world. Very um, true. So even if you can answer the questions, you got the questions wrong in the first place. And so how do you ask great questions, right?
1: And that's what we, uh, those are the first two steps of the engineering design process that I teach my students every year is the first one, they have to clarify the team assignment. They've got to understand what it is that the client wants solved. What is the real problem? Not the solution that the client wants, but what's the problem they're trying to solve? Understanding the humans that oftentimes the client isn't the user, of the device the client has decided that we need to solve this problem so they run an NGO but the humans that use their devices are people that live in small communities right um, how do we have access to those people who understand the problem from their perspective and their needs that they have and then the second part the second step of the design process is to um, understand the problem and the context We've really got to understand the problem and the problem and the context go together right the water the problem of clean water access in flint michigan is very different than the access to clean water in mexico city or in chiapas like so understanding the people the culture the context at the center of the problem understanding the types of solutions that have been tried in the communities why they haven't worked Yeah, we have to understand all that before we can almost even get to the math and science. And if we're not asking the right questions there, it can lead us to the very wrong solution. Um, Yeah, and so we need more people in engineering that are human-focused, human-centered. We can teach you the math and science. Don't be afraid of math and science. We can get you over those hurdles um, if you can really put the human at the center of the design challenges
0: that's lovely
1: now i
0: have um read your bio and, and prior to being at rice and, and sort of between seems like graduate school and rice you had been in mexico um doing something else completely different am i right
1: yeah you're you're totally we right yeah <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I took an unconventional path out of grad school. Um, I knew that I had always wanted to work in another country. I always wanted to work among um, the global poor. I wanted to work in a place that challenged me um, and my comfort, (laughs) really. Um, And so I had an opportunity through an organization that I had known for a little while to go work in Northern Mexico. Um, I was in a town called Cuauhtémoc in the state of Chihuahua. Um, it is kind of a town that is kind of like the last town before you he- hit the deep mountainous region of the North of Mexico. And we're working with children that had been displaced, uh, mostly from uh, some environmental change, but also a lot of pressure from um the drug trade that's happening in Mexico. And so they have come to this town seeking refuge, but they often don't have the basic resources that they need. And so um, this organization uh, works to provide children with um, a home, food, clothing, and an education. Um, And the education being that they can change the cycles of poverty for their own family if they have some basic education and so Um, It was a great opportunity for me. Um, It was very different. People always ask, did I do anything engineering there? Maybe not directly, but I think you're right when we talk about that human centeredness of everything, being able to work with children that are coming from very different backgrounds than I came from and helping them see a way towards a different education. And so um, We have a student, a kid that graduated from our program that has a bachelor's degree in engineering. Uh, He recently took a job in the U.S. even um, after working for several years in Mexico and is traveling a lot for his job. So just a really cool opportunity. And I think, you know, maybe having role models for them is really great. Uh, We have another student that's also right now in school for engineering, actually two that are in school for engineering and some couple of students that are in college to be teachers. So, um, it was a really rewarding experience for me to kind of see, um, children, if given an opportunity, they can really change the future generationally for their families. Um, and so that was a great opportunity. Um, I think there was a risk, I think in that taking that chance, um, you know, had just received a PhD in engineering to go work, um in a very different context but it was a re- really rewarding experience for me and I think it has also served me well um for one my Spanish got a lot better uh, which now gives me the opportunity to lead study abroads in Mexico and be able to translate and work with the clients locally but it also just gave me a different perspective of the world um, which I think makes me a better engineer as well so <laughs> well it
0: i I'm not surprised by your answer and um it just feels um it it feels like that you know the 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 sort of empathy and the care about the world and the human you know um, part of you know the 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 whole equation is is what makes seems to what makes you your program you know and and what you do with your students so special now tell me a little bit about. Um, we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I'm just so um, curious in then how do you get your students to build these portfolios based on their projects? And and it seems like it's not just a project. Sometimes, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how all that sort of ends up being in people's portfolio? I mean, it's a... It's it's a it's a long walk to get there,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it was a few years ago that we decided that um, really we were looking for an assessment tool, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was exposed to ePortfolios as an assessment tool in grad school, of all places, um, even though I was pretty anti-ePortfolio back then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just didn't see how it it meshed with like the courses or the skills that I was developing Uh, in hindsight. I feel like I was very narrow-minded in that, but um, really what I saw was an opportunity is that, I mean, you come from an architecture background, right? And so architects are known to have portfolios. Like that's something an architect should have. Um, And I thought that our projects aligned very well with that kind of uh, visual Um, communication. And so our students were already creating visual documents of their designs and documenting progress and iterations of their prototypes. And so part of me, I was thinking like, why not put this in a more public format? Um, So we have a lot of our studio operates because of donors. And so our donors are always eager to see what our students are doing And not all of them can come travel here to visit with us. Although we try to have a lot of open houses and opportunities, we thought a more visual context of like having our students demonstrate, this is the problem I'm working on. This is some of our ideas. This is why it's a problem. This is how it's going to change people's lives. And here's the thing I'm building. And this might be a really low fidelity made out of like craft sticks, right? But it's an idea that I can show it to you. I can talk about it and it helps lead me to the next iteration of my prototype, right? Um, And so uh, we just, I mean, once we had kind of bought into the idea that it could be an assessment tool, we started really moving a lot of our student work that was already happening into the portfolio format because it was an easy transition to make. Um, What they were doing was already ripe and ready for Uh, a portfolio format. So there was like, you know, a little bit of the hiccups of like, okay, like what's the, um, what's the template that we're going to use? What's the information that we're going to ask them to? And slowly semester after semester, we've just moved more and more towards the portfolios. And actually this next semester, we're going to be cutting out some of the, more of the PDFs that we've been asking them to create and turn in and make it a portfolio first as opposed to a PDF first and then translate it into a portfolio format. Um, And one of the reasons we're going to do that is because we've seen when they put the energy and time in portfolio first mindset, the quality is higher than if it's a PDF first and then translate it to a portfolio page. And so um, we're really seeing the students take ownership of what they're doing there because of that mentality of portfolio first and our students have reported back that the portfolio is what has gotten them internships and jobs and opportunities that they would not have normally had and it has become a talking point during interviews or during a career fair and it's something that has become very easy for them to share and they were surprised some of them by that but because we can have them come talk to our students and talk to them about that experience, it becomes a motivational tool for the other students to go, oh, if I do this well, it doesn't just serve me for my class, it serves me in my career. And so that's kind of how we've gotten students to buy into this. And then once it's there, I, we just tell them like, oh, you have an internship this summer? Why don't you put that information on your portfolio? And they're <laughs> like, Really? Because they haven't necessarily thought about that. But I'm like, yes, it's a career development tool, right? Um, And so a lot of them have started. And so some of our best ones you'll see, they will be like, they did a research um, stint in a lab here as an undergraduate. And so they put their research project on there. Or they spent a summer doing an internship, and so they put that on there. Or some of them, it's like, oh, I had this other class, and we did this really cool thing, and I thought it'd be really good to put it on my portfolio, and it's not a class that requires it at all. And it's just like, once they see that, and they take ownership of it, they see as an opportunity for, um, you know, a career development tool that, hey, I can show other people what I'm doing. And sometimes it starts with showing their mom and dad, which are the ones that are the cheerleaders, But beyond that, they start to show their peers. Um, Their peers start to leave feedback for them. And like they start to be recognized amongst their peers as, oh, that's the one that has a really good portfolio. And so um, we are trying to create a culture around it. I think it's been a little bit slow um, because it's different, right? It's not something that engineers normally do. But I think they realize that it starts to set them apart. And when it starts to set them apart, in a very, like, competitive field, um, I think they're willing to take the risk and spend time doing it well. So it's a culture that we're trying to create. Um, It's not easy. And anybody that has any advice for how to continue to build the culture, we're welcome and open, uh, all open ears for that. So, but we're trying.
0: Well, I think you're very much pioneers in the field as well. Don't sell yourself
1: short.
0: (laughs) Um, I I, I do think that there is something um, I've heard from students that that sort of is an extension to what you were saying, which is you know, um, in addition to the ability to share you know their work and experiences with a potential employer or you know someone that they can get internship from an all whatever opportunity um, that they were seeking, they also um, talk about how because they went through the process of creating a portfolio and that the the reflection and the sort of the 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 sort of the articulation of their of their vision of the world and how it all sort of gel together they've sort of had that experience putting it together once sometimes yeah. multiple times even right that when someone when they get to face these you know, potential opportunities—they just become more particular. They just become, you know, like certainly in things like interviews, when people ask you things like, "Well, tell me about this project." It could be as innocent as that, right? But if you haven't talked about it or you haven't you haven't had that experience, it almost feels like you are um, uh, sort of caught caught in the in the middle. And, uh, and not being able to to express yourself in an efficient way and also in a, in a way that articulates the real idea, you might you might kind of stumble and sort of, you know after you tell them about the project, you can even get to the, 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 the real, you know most important part. Um, but Such. for people who have gone through that process, it's just they're, they're succinct, and they can make connections very, very quickly. Um, yeah. And it's almost like to me. It establishes certain kind of neurons, you know, connections between your own experiences and projects, where once you've established them, they exist as a tool for you to use. But before you do that, at real time to establish them, you're just not good at it yet. And you haven't found the connections yet. And so it becomes harder to answer those questions. And I, you know, something, those are people, they care so much about this sort of, resume application and interview stage of getting careers, I actually really think that it goes way beyond and above that. I think about people who are meeting someone socially, being able to just articulate, hey, what do you do? What kind of engineering do you do? What do you you care about in the world? Mm -hmm. But it also happens sort of post getting a job, you know, being able to sort of fit how how to fit yourself into the culture of an organization, being able to, you know, um, make cogent and you know compelling, you know, view of yes. of of your solutions or the way that you see the world, yep. um, or what you observe of that human condition that you talk about, is is the kind of thing that the, those are the sort of neurons that get established when you're you know. building, you know
1: that's so true and like some of our students have come back and said you know you know i was able to establish myself as someone that was good at like going back to the critical arguments right Make, making um an argument and putting data towards it and creating a reason for why we should move forward you know some of them have really developed that skill really well and so and it comes through in their portfolio um but then they become in their early career, they get known as the person like, oh, if you wrote something, maybe you should share it with her because she'll be able to give you some feedback and point some holes in your justification or your reasoning, you know. And some of that does come from like their portfolio or just their experiences that we kind of are really driving home in the classroom. So you'll notice on our students' portfolios that I mean, it's the second week of class. We're asking them to write a succinct problem statement. What is this like couple sentence statement of like what I'm going to solve? And it becomes the mission statement for the team, right? It's the thing that guides all of the rest of their work. Um, But the first pass at it, I mean, okay, even the first one that they put on their portfolio has gone through some iteration and editing, right? But I even tell them that's not your final one. Um, because every, so we get lots of visitors here at the design kitchen. And the, whenever there's visitors, I always, and especially when it's in the middle of class, I'm like, hey class, we have visitors today. If they come up to their, your table, please tell them what you're working on. Engage them in the work that you're doing. And that starts with saying what your problem statement is. So they'll realize that, okay, we wrote this thing. And yeah, I could memorize it and tell someone, but the more I just off the cuff tell it, the more it'll start to feel natural and the more that you'll get to what is the optimal design statement and we tell them go back and update it like it's not once it's on your portfolio it doesn't mean it's like written in stone like um and so they have this opportunity to like you know write it the second week of class but then they have two formal per- presentations and they'll say it again at their formal presentations they have three informal presentations where they should be saying the problem statement always. And I always tell them like in the informal presentations, I'm like, start at the beginning, start with your problem statement. Um, because that for one gives them the the professional hat, but it also engages the conversation. That's how we start. This is what I'm working on. This is why it matters to the people that I'm trying to solve this problem for and this is what we're hoping to achieve right and so and you're right and whether you're at a bar or at a networking event or in an elevator being able to say that really succinctly in a way that's like oh wow that sounds cool tell me more um, it brings people into your conversation and so um, my hope and is that they get really good at that one thing at least if they don't learn anything else is how to give a <laughs> really good problem statement because they do it so often and um and you're right now it's like okay I'm working in a lab can I turn this into a problem statement probably right can I turn this into the 30 second elevator pitch about what I'm doing and why yeah probably so i
0: want to just um
1: uh,
0: observe one one more thing that might be a good little piece of nugget for people cuz i think it came to you very naturally from a this sort of studio based, sort of kit, design kitchen based sort of an environment. And that is this very idea that your students are creating these different versions of the statement, like you said, week one, week two, early on. Mm-hmm. It means and implies that they are not having students create a portfolio after the work is done. Right. It's they are starting the process. Before they even knew anything were going to happen, you know, this could could flop, right? It right. could be a project that goes to the conclusion is we couldn't solve it, but uh, hopefully it's not the case. You always right. get something,
1: yeah.
0: You get something out of it, yeah. Uh, but the but the but the idea isn't this, you know, like. A lot of people think about portfolios as being sort of this very finished, you know, polished. Mm, showcase. Yeah. So that would be messy, kind of like a kitchen.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it gets You're right. Just like a kitchen. It gets yeah. messy during the creation of it, right? Yep. Um And you don't just wait for the final presentation. And yeah, our students are adding to their portfolio almost weekly um, from week two um, to the very end. They're adding weekly and we're constantly with reminders and nudges of hey like step three really kind of changed a little bit of your trajectory that you kind of established in step one you know like of the design process go back and update what you did there right and even on there we have a page where they're just kind of um, talking about the development of their prototypes we're like talk about what didn't work Like, don't just show me photos of the things that worked. Don't just talk about the things that you tried that worked. Talk about the things that didn't work. Um, That's as important. Um, Often someone else is going to work on this project later and you don't want them to go and spend time going down that same rabbit hole that you already chased and you came to an answer, Um, especially if you have strong evidence for why you shouldn't have gone down that path, right? Um, But that should be documented. And so, oftentimes, it's funny. Uh, our students have design tables. Um, they're like kind of like waist high black design tables. And underneath each table, there's a little box. Um, and this box is, I guess, a locker of sorts. It has. They can put a padlock on it, and they can store any of their materials, just kind of secured away underneath their table. And oftentimes when they're talking about prototypes and they just have like the finished versions on top, I'll open up the black box and I'm like, well, let's pull all of these things out. Like, and I'm sitting there pulling one by one, all these former prototypes out and they're like, oh, but those didn't work. I'm like, okay, that's fantastic. I couldn't be more happy to hear that they didn't work and that you still have them. Cause let's talk about why they didn't work. Um, you know, I think our culture so clearly wants to hide the things that aren't perfect. You know, I mean, it's the whole social media culture. We Instagram, you put the most Instagrammable photos up, right? But I tell students all the time, like, put those failures up there, and uh, we create a culture that it's like, like, honor your failures, uh, celebrate your failures. Let's talk about them because if you're, if you're not willing to learn from them, you'll make the same mistakes and. Um, And when we document them and put them in public spaces, other people can learn from our failures too, which means that we advance as a society faster and better. Um, And so, yeah, we're a big fan of, even when the students don't want to, we pull out all the failures out of their little hidden spaces and say, let's talk about these things because they didn't work. And we're going to learn from them if you haven't already. And then to document them and put them on your portfolio. And the portfolio for them over the course of semester is a work in progress. And if People in the outside world can't recognize that. That's that's okay. Uh, I let them know. Like, this is a work in progress. Like you'll update it as you go along. Uh, continue editing it. Uh, and there's lots of opportunities for them to do that.
0: Well, Deidre, thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom. And I think um, if I may borrow what you just said, work in progress, we are all work in progress, aren't yeah. we? Um, and, uh, but I I really appreciate uh, everything that you shared, we covered a lot of topics. I, I feel like I'm gonna have to go back and digest them a little <laughs> bit and try to try to make sense of it all. Uh, but um, I hope that um, you know soon enough we can uh, we can revisit again and see where you go with all of this. It would be lovely to you know do a follow up at some point and maybe to even speak with some of your colleagues and students. You know it would be really great to see all of how to get a glimpse of this what seems to be a magical place at rice
1: <laughs> that'd be a lot of fun jeff i'd really appreciate that opportunity you know sometimes being here i feel like we work in isolation in some ways and so i love i would love to get more feedback and collaboration and just hear from others outside of our little bubble about what they like or what they wish they could see in some of the work that we do and seeing how other people do it as well um i i hope to see more people using portfolios and just this idea of sharing how does how does design work in education and um, and then how do we share that and so I'm so happy to share and I'm look forward to talking with you more and just also getting more external feedback uh, on what we're up to out here so
0: all right well take care and thanks again for spending time with us today
1: all right thanks Jeff have a great day this concludes our conversation
0: to hear our next episode Be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The Digication Scholars Conversations series is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.